If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to this special History Extra End of Roman Britain podcast series. This is episode 3 and I am David Musgrove, your host for the series. Last time I talked to Professor Will Bowden to get the background of what we know about late Roman Britain, the politics of its time and the conditions on the ground. This time we're going to turn our attention to the Roman army on the assumption that one of the facets of the end of Roman Britain was the withdrawal of Roman legions. Our guy today is Dr Rob Collins, lecturer in archaeology at the University of Newcastle, an expert on the Roman military and specifically on that most famous of Roman defensive boundaries, Hadrian's Wall. The first thing I asked him to do was to give us a top-line summary of his position on what happened at the end of Roman Britain. So over to Rob. For me, the end of Roman Britain actually is not one straight story. It's a series of a whole bunch of different stories that really depends on where you lived in Roman Britain when it comes to an end. So I'm sitting up here on Hadrian's Wall, and the end of Roman Britain is is something that's happening, in my mind, very largely to the south. So it's not to say the end of Roman Britain doesn't affect all of Britain. It absolutely does. But the effects of that end are felt very differently. And so... Uh, if you want a, a simple a simple comparison, simple analogy, I kind of see the end of Roman Britain as a little bit like a BBC winter weather report in which all of the UK has experienced some sort of snowfall. In the south, there's been maybe 
three or four centimeters of snow that have fallen. And then what you hear on the news is the RAF is launching helicopters to rescue people who are trapped on the M25. Um, you know, trains have stopped, you know, babies are crying. How will people survive the colds? All this, all this really massive hype in the north of England. In the meantime, we've had two feet of snowfall and everything is normal. And that's kind of how I see the end of Roman Britain uh, in that sense, that there's a lot more hype for it, I think, in the south of Britain than there is in the north. Let's just take a quick pause there, because what Rob's just said is a reminder of what Will told us in the last episode about the complicated regional nature of the response to the decline in Roman influence. I thought it'd be useful to ask Rob to expand on that point a little bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, what's fascinating is that, you know, it's we're so used to thinking of Britain as one unit, or maybe we think of it as the United Kingdom and, you know, the combination of Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland and England. Um, but for Roman Britain, it's it's not actually a province anymore. Uh, in the Roman government, in the structure of Roman government, it's a diocese. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of one entity, but at the next level up from province. There's actually four and, and maybe even five provinces that make up Roman Britain. And each province has its own governor, um, has its own governor's offices, its own tax collectors, uh, you know, um, its own separate government. And so you, you can't really think of Roman Britain as one unit. It's, it's at least four different political units. And on top of that, you then have this really interesting situation where the late Roman Empire has separated its civilian or civic offices of, of governors, for example, or, or town councillors from its military uh, branch, you know, from the generals in the army. And if you embark on a military career path, you will not fulfill a, a civilian governmental career path and, and vice versa. If you're in the civil government, then you won't be part of the army. And it's it's actually meant to be a separation of powers in that sense. But in that regard, the north of Britannia, uh, most of what we can now consider northern England um, from kind of Doncaster north is is controlled, not controlled, but uh, you've got one general, the Dux Britanniarum, who's in charge of all the soldiers in Northern England. Um, and there, that might also <clears throat> be the same territory that's one province, Britannia Secunda, who also has a governor. Um, however, they're, they're two separate commands. Um, and so that's the thing to think about, late Roman Britain, before it even all comes crashing down to an end, or petering out and changing into something different, it's not really all one unit. It's not all the same. It seems like a good moment for a pause here because Rob just dropped in the question there of whether the Roman Empire came crashing down in Britain or rather petered out. Now, we talked about the year 410 in the last episode, but just how significant was that? You'll remember how Will pointed out that what we can see in the archaeological record does start to change quite rapidly in the early years of the 5th century. So I wanted to clarify Rob if he felt there was indeed a moment when Roman Britain ends. Yes and no. In fact, it's, it, it is tricky because there's this fascinating series of events that starts happening. Um, it's argued on New Year's Eve of AD 406 when you get um, a barbarian invasion across the Rhine. And part of Britain's connection to the rest of the Roman Empire is really very much reliant upon that link. You know, really, it's it's the English Channel. It's, it's, it's Dover to Calais in some cases. And so the, the people in Britain, or at least the people in charge in Britain, are really worried that they're going to be cut off 
from the Roman Empire um, with this barbarian invasion. And so what happens is you get this, this quickly appointed local emperor um, who who is meant to be an emperor for Britain and, in, and represent Britain's interests in the Roman Empire, who is supposed to solve this problem. The first one doesn't do so well, um, and, and he, I believe, he's removed. The second one also doesn't do what's expected. I think he dies. The third one is appointed, um, and this is a man named Constantine. And what you have to remember is that 100 years earlier, Constantine the Great, as it were, was initially proclaimed emperor in Britain. So about 100 years after Constantine the Great becomes the most popular and successful Roman emperor that anyone can imagine in living history, you know, we have a new emperor, Constantine, who's known as Constantine III. He crosses to Gaul with an army, and actually he's quite successful for a few years. Um, but it's when he he loses, or rather his government loses, um, what we have from one source we interpret as there's a rebellion against Constantine III's government, where they oust, oust his officials. And really, it's that appointment of Constantine III and, and then the rebellion against him that is kind of the political moment, the end of Roman Britain, um, because there's never any new Roman officials appointed, none that come from the continent, um, none that are proclaimed or at least recognized in our written sources. And so we can look at that period of, of AD 410, which is when we think this rebellion against Constantine III occurs, is the end of Roman Britain. Because suddenly, according to the very thin source material we have, the very few histor- historical texts, there's no, there's no officially recognized Roman officials appointed or in government. So we can say, actually, there is an end to Roman Britain in a political sense. But the other question, the flip side is, Politics isn't the same as culture. Um, And so while there might not necessarily be an agreement about who's in charge in Roman Britain, that doesn't mean that all those things that that made the life of those people in Roman Britain what it was, that's not going to just disappear overnight. This feels like another good moment for a, a bit of a pause. So we've talked a bit about the nature of the late Roman state there and the place of the military within it. But that begs the, the really big question of how far was late Roman Britain a militarised state? Roman Britain is always, to to a large extent, a very militarised part of the Roman Empire, and also very much in the outer periphery of the Roman Empire. If in the second century, it was an exciting place to be in Britain, a really good place if you were someone with ambitious career plans, getting an appointment to Britain was excellent. By the fourth century, getting an appointment to Britain isn't the sort of thing that you would brag about to your to your mates who are getting appointed to other provinces. It's considered a bit of a backwater. Um, and in fact, there's even a Latin poem that is is um, about bonus the Britain, and it's it's a play on words. Bonus meaning good. You know, effectively, how can a Britain be good? You know, the the implication being that Britons are are semi barbarous at the best. So you know, amongst the wider Roman Empire, Britain is seen as perhaps not as civilized a land as as modern Britain thinks of itself. So because of that, late Roman Britain is is actually almost surrounded to some extent by enemies. And that north of Hadrian's Wall, there certainly will be people probably living close to Hadrian's Wall who are a bit friendly or on good diplomatic terms with the Romans. But you've got uh, this, this new enemy called the Picts. And the Romans talk about the Picts as pretty much being anyone north of the wall. Um, 
archaeologically, there's been some fantastic work. Um, and we think in archaeological terms that the Picts are really in, in Highland Scotland. But for the Romans, the Picts were, were anyone north of the wall. And so we know that there are there are peoples, the Picts, that are are raiding, attacking from north of the wall, not just over land, but ostensibly also by boat down the coast on the east and west side of the country. There's also the Scotty, who at this point actually are not Scottish; they're they're the Irish. You know, it's it's a term is a is a raider a term for a raider from from Ireland. So we've got the the Scotty, but Irish raiders that are attacking the west coast of Britain, not just in the north, but also um, Wales and in the southwest as well. And then on the east coast and the southeast, since the later third century, there are accounts of of Germanic pirates, of, of Saxons, uh, particularly, but also Franks and, and other Germanic peoples who are attacking the coast. And so from pretty much every direction except the south, Britain could expect to be attacked. Now, these aren't massive, uh, gigantic armies uh, invading hordes of barbarians. Um, they're... They're smaller attacks, they're raiding parties. But those raiding parties can still have quite an impact. You know, they can steal cattle, they can steal um, people, um, they can steal what wealth people possess, they can be burning crops. It it doesn't take a lot, really, to disrupt a a farmer's lifestyle and, and their ability to pay taxes. And if that's happening on a fairly regular basis every year... Um, there's a challenge there. So the job of the Roman army was to defend the province. And so to that extent, you have the Dukes Britanniarum in the north, who was in charge of all the soldiers in northern England, uh, including Hadrian's Wall. You had in the southeast um, a position known as Comes Latoris Saxoniki, the Count of the Saxon Shore. And, and his job was to man and, and effectively be a general of those of those garrisons, those forts along the southern and eastern coast of England. So at Dover, at Richborough, at Pevensey. Um, we also know that there's some forts in Wales, but we don't know if there's a different general in charge of those. That's that's evidence we don't have. But we do know that there's a there's anywhere between, let's say, twelve thousand and twenty thousand soldiers in Roman Britain. Um, it's it kind of around the term the time of AD four hundred. So there's that's a lot of soldiers. You know, there's there's at least two generals. And that defense of Britain is seen as as important. There's enough pressures on the Roman Empire. If they if they if they didn't think Britain needed to be defended, they would put those soldiers elsewhere. Um, so there is a there is a sense that there needs to be some level of security, even if not from an, an invading army, at least from uh, very pesky raiders. So, are you saying that Roman Britain was more heavily militarized than other parts of the Roman Empire, other than Gaul? across the the sea, for instance? Was there uh, less of a proportion of soldiers to civilians, do we know? Yes, absolutely. I I think if you you look at the proportion of of soldiers to civilians, Britain is higher than average. But it's very shifty and and, and dynamic across the Roman Empire. So the majority of soldiers are always kind of found in the frontiers. So stretched all along the Rhine, all along the Danube, um, and at at key cities in the Near East and, and in Africa, you have kind of these soldiers. Um, but there are other parts of the Roman Empire which have very, very few soldiers. So much of Roman Gaul actually didn't have that many soldiers. Most of of the Iberian Peninsula, what's now Spain and Portugal, didn't really have many soldiers. 
most of North Africa, in fact, didn't have many soldiers. And those are often known as the, the kind of the wealthy, rich parts of empire. And, and soldiers are usually found in the frontier. It's just the fact that Britain is a, a smaller unit than Roman Gaul or Roman Hispania, and that you've got three fronts, as it were, you know, north, east, and west, um, means that, you know, three out of those four sides of Britain have a, a, a greater military presence. You've mentioned Hadrian's Wall a couple of times. It's a, a particular specialism of yours, and we've talked about it on the, on the podcast before. But just uh, just remind us: so in the year eighty uh, four hundred, was Hadrian's Wall a functioning border, a functioning military border? Yeah. So our evidence from Hadrian's Wall around eighty four hundred is that all the forts appear to be occupied. Um, they're not evenly excavated in terms of evidence, but you know what evidence we have, it does look that you know every fort is still holding a garrison. We have evidence from some mile castles in the form of pottery that, you know, that those mile castles are still being garrisoned. Um, you know, a lot of the forts to the south of Hadrian's Wall that make up that that deep network of, of you know, military installations of, of, an, of a, a regional army are also occupied. Um, we can see, you know, some of the latest fashions in terms of Roman military metalwork are, are also still around. So Hadrian's Wall and, and the army along it is still part of the Roman army in general. It's, it's still participating in that empire-wide defense. Um, so it's, it's not something which has been given up. What we think is that there might be fewer soldiers around AD 400 than there was around AD 200. But actually, that's also a trend that we see across the entire Roman empire, that Roman army units on the whole get a bit smaller um so there are probably fewer units or sorry fewer soldiers per fort but they're still there they're still doing their job and what's also important to say that these are still paid soldiers these are still professional soldiers um you know they're they're not always paid completely in cash you know some of their payment is actually in terms of food um and in shelter and equipment but it's still a, a professional salaried position and and not just a, a hobby, for example. And what do we know about the, these soldiers? Were they locally recruited or were they from across the entirety of the empire? This is one of our real challenges in late Roman Britain. We can say so much about soldiers around AD 200. We have lots of inscriptions. Um, we don't really have that practice of inscription anymore around AD 400, that, that habit to, you know, to carve a dedication on a new building or to carve a tombstone is really, it's very absent through, throughout the entirety of late Roman Britain. So we don't have the names of some of these individuals. We also, um, sadly, don't really have a lot of records or paperwork. The, the evidence that we get from something like the Vindolanda tablets, which is so rich in detail and vibrant in, in kind of daily activity, um, those Vindolanda tablets are from the, the late 1st century, early 2nd century AD, and, and have survived because of the, the depth at which they were buried. Um, one of the things that you have to kind of understand with late Roman Britain is um, it's an archaeological issue around stratigraphy. And, and very simply put, late Roman Britain is higher in the soil. It's closer to the surface of the soil than early Roman Britain. And actually, that means our evidence for late Roman Britain is more vulnerable. It's more likely to have been destroyed by a plow. It's more likely to be bulldozed off, um, you know, when a new city building is, is put up. Um, it, it was much more likely to be destroyed and damaged when a new castle was built in the Middle Ages. And so we just don't have a lot of that evidence. So in terms of who those soldiers are, I can't say with certainty. But what we can say, looking more broadly at the rest of the Roman Empire, 
is that most of those soldiers were probably local. They were probably men who, as children, were raised locally, if not immediately at the fort, then certainly within Northern Britannia. Um, There would have been some men who are still posted from abroad. Um, We know, for example, in the 370s that uh, a whole load of of Germanic barbarians were settled in Britain and were probably distributed throughout the frontier. So there would be some people who are foreign. It's not to say there's no mobility and travel, but the majority of those soldiers are probably, you know, local men. So that leads on to, to an interesting question as to whether and you talked about the external threats that Roman Britannia was facing. And in your one of your earliest answers, you talked about sort of internal rebellions and people. Uh, and people. So were there were there internal threats that these soldiers were um, positioned to to put down? Uh, and if so, if they were part of the local populace, how was that? How was that? Um, how was that seen? Yeah, the, the late Roman Empire is. I think it's fair to say. Uh, a state of paranoid politicians, um, that people were always looking after their own backsides, those people in power, and and were aware of those internal threats. And so you have, um, throughout the late Roman Empire, there's very regular rebellions. Um, And so there is that danger that, that, you know, that... um, there might be a rebel. It might be a governor who's gone rogue and wants his own his own kingdom. Um, it might be actually someone who's just being corrupt in our terms. Um, that they are skimming off the money from taxes or skimming off the selling supplies that are supposed to go to the soldiers to line their own pockets. This sort of practice was actually quite common throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and so there is that problem with internal security. Um there's also um, the emperor maintained uh, something called uh, agentes and in, in rebus, secret agents, effectively. And so there was a secret police that also operated throughout the Roman Empire that would report on, on individuals. Um, and so that was something else to be aware of. You know, even if you were um, an honest, upright sort of officer, if, if maybe you didn't play the game well, you could find yourself caught in a political intrigue and and off with your head sort of thing should should we imagine then that um aside from the the actual professional soldiers that, that we've talked about the the civilian population were also potentially often armed and militarily minded if that's not a, a, a strange way to describe it um, not at all. There's a there's an intriguing practice actually that we we tend to think of the Romans as is only having Roman soldiers, but actually many of the the wealthy, the well to do, the well healed, retained um, a, a private security force. Effectively, they had armed retainers, um, and and they were they were effectively a family bodyguard uh, in a security force for their estates. So whether it's out on their villas in the countryside or their fancy townhouses, you know, inside the city walls. Um, you know, these these important, inevitably, mostly men, would be using their wealth to to pay for uh, private security forces. You know, we might think of them today as, as mercenaries, um, but it, it wasn't anything unique to Britain. It's found across the, the whole empire. And so that means there are armed civilians out there as well, and, and not just the soldiers. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So let's pause again. Rob's giving us a good overview there of how far late Roman Britain was a militarised state and who the soldiers stationed here were supposed to be defending against. Now, incidentally, if you're interested in knowing more about the Picts, as he talks about, we have an entire podcast episode about them in our Everything You Want to Know series. Just search the podcast catalogue to find that. But a, a key question here is, can we see any evidence of these Roman soldiers actually upping sticks and leaving Britain at the start of the 5th century? Actually, there there is a, a very traditional notion, but one that's still deeply entrenched, that the Romans march away, that all the soldiers are withdrawn, and that that marks the end of Roman Britain, that you know, the absence of Roman soldiers is, is what confirms Roman Britain has come to an end. That's, that's very much in contrast to our archaeological evidence. There's a number of military sites, fort sites, not least along Hadrian's Wall, but also not exclusive to Hadrian's Wall. We can see evidence of this along the Saxon shore in the south as well, that soldiers are remaining in place. What becomes really difficult for us is that question of how many soldiers are remaining in place. And one of the things I think that is unknowable at present is if you have those generals I talked about, if you have the Dukes Britanniarum, if you have the Count of the Saxon Shore, if there's someone in that office doing the job, making sure that soldiers are getting their supplies, redistributing those supplies as necessary, uh, enforcing recruitment to make sure that, you know, if soldiers die or retire, they're being replaced. Then in principle, those, those armies can be retained. In practice, they probably slowly did wither and, and, and die. But we also think that the, the current thinking at the moment is something called the warband model. That even if those uh, generalships are declining or disappearing, that actually the fact that many of those soldiers are, are local lads, you know, they're, they're serving 
in the home they've always known, then they're not just upping sticks and leaving because that's what they're supposed to do. They're they're going to defend their home. That's that's their life. It's where they've lived. And so there's this notion that a lot of those soldiers will have become, you know, for lack of a better word, warriors in a local war band. And they won't be as those war bands won't be as large as a as a Roman army unit. You know, it might go from being, say, 200 to 300 men to something like, you know, 30 or 40 men. But actually, in the 5th century, having an armed body of, of you know, 30 or 40 men is, is quite considerable and expensive as well. And the scenario you've just described is a bunch of uh, military men uh, occupying Roman fortifications looking like Roman legionaries, but not necessarily in the same political or even mental mindset of of Romanitas. Is that is that correct? And how would you is that archaeological archaeologically attested? Yes, that's correct. So yeah, you you have to think, yeah, these these are men they and what we don't know is if they call themselves Roman soldiers or not. Um but yeah, these are these are men who have who probably for multiple generations of their family have been Roman soldiers. You know, this is it's not just their life, it's it's their entire you know, family lines, life and, and story. Um, so they're just going to, they're staying there. And, and we do have that archaeologically attested. There's the site of Bird Oswald on Hadrian's Wall, for example, which was excavated by Tony Wilmot in the late 80s and early 90s. And he found this really incredible sequence of change, of transformation. The, the, the large granary buildings, the kind of the big warehouses that are meant to supply a, a Roman garrison, the building itself is still erect, but it's no longer being used as a warehouse. What he found was evidence for a new floor surface. Uh, he found a hearth at one end, you know, a, a fire that people are sitting around. Um, and beside that fire, he found a golden earring, um, it, you know, which suggests that you have someone relatively wealthy sitting there. We assume a, a woman because it's an earring, but it's, it's feasible it could be a, a, a man as well. But you have an important person that's sitting at that fireplace. And that former granary has now become something much more like a, a village hall. And that's only the first of a sequence of three. The, the, the roof on that village hall, former granary, collapses. They build a new one overlying the granary that was to the north. And when that one collapses, they build a new one. Um, and so you have here three village halls, or actually, archaeologically, they look like feast halls or mead halls that we associate with the Anglo-Saxons. But they're not built um, by Anglo-Saxon immigrants. Uh, they're not built in the south or east of England, where we have that Anglo-Saxon migration. They're built in a fort on Hadrian's Wall with no other sense of this new migration. So this is just part of that transformation of, of soldiers being part of a, a Roman army that connected across the entire Roman Empire to being part of a, of a local military force. And that archaeological story that you just talked about, based on uh, excavation, you know, the halves and that sort of thing, um, does that uh, agree or disagree with the historical evidence that we have, do you think? That disagrees with the historical evidence. Um, and that's largely because we really don't have a lot of historical evidence for the end of Roman Britain. Um, the few sources we have that are are broadly contemporary are from Gaul, Um and I think that's the other thing we have to bear in mind, that those writers in Gaul, um, exciting and interesting as they are, they probably are also only writing about maybe the south of England. Um, you know, the north of England is far beyond their sight. Um, 
and that again, we're coming back to that sense of regionality of Roman Britain that we can't take the evidence of one or two writers in Gaul to stand for all of Roman Britain. It might only stand for Kent or for Wessex, you know, those parts of, of Britain that were closest to Gaul. But it's a really important story to counter in, in looking, bringing in that archaeology. And so, you know, all those really fascinating finds that make us question, you know, how biased those ancient writers were is, is really important. And I think helps us better understand the realities of living in a, in a post-imperial society. So we've got a, a bit of a challenge here in that we've got archaeological evidence and historical evidence that are somewhat at odds. Rob's describing scenarios where people are still maintaining Roman sites, but perhaps without the integration into the Roman Empire and its economic and security networks. So we get this local warband model being proposed, a substantive change rather than a collapse in society, and not this old idea of a, a great withdrawal of troops to elsewhere. But again, Rob's stressing the regional complexities of the situations. Roman Britain was a place of many parts, but it seems like he's describing a place that was more dangerous and hostile generally. What I wanted to know from him is whether there's any evidence of violence in the archaeological record. The evidence is really tentative, but there has been some work, for example, looking at skeletal material, which suggests that there is an increase in violence, uh, more more wounds and traces on skeletal material, on bones, that suggest, you know, violent activity. And that's just what we can see. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that people can die that will leave no traces on bones. But there is that tentative evidence. I think the other thing to remember is that while the Roman Empire could be a very brutal system in a very brutal place, that there were some things that also brought a greater measure of peace. You know, there were there were laws that were enforced. Um, when there's when you lose that overarching authority, you know, there's no one there to enforce those laws. That that introduces a, a lot more danger to the system. Um, and that anyone with the strength to enforce their own will can do so. Um, and so suddenly, if those villa owners or town councillors don't have an emperor they have to send their taxes to. And yet they've also got um, a private security force, their own security guards. They could very quickly become even more uh, bullies, even greater bullies out in the countryside. On the other hand, maybe because they don't have to send their taxes off, maybe they don't have to be as big a bullies. You know, they can, you know, there's not as much pressure on them. So maybe there's a bit more food, uh, you know, to go around. It's, it's tough to say, but you can really easily imagine if suddenly we, you know, if maybe not today for us, but, you know, in another 10 years when, say, our children have grown up and, and there's no there's no parliament, there's no prime minister, you know, who's in charge? Who's keeping us safe? It, it becomes a really, potentially a scary thought. And just thinking about taxation uh, and finances and, uh, and the broader economy. So you've talked about there being a lot of soldiers potentially in, in Britannia. I don't know if we can make an, ast- look of an accurate estimate of the actual proportion of soldiers versus civilians, but presumably quite a lot, um, and therefore quite important financially. What are the economic impacts of those soldiers being less prevalent? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's one of the the key questions really that when you've got to pay for an army soldiers are uh, are expensive 
Um, and whether that's soldiers that you're paying for out of your taxes for the state, or whether those are your own personal soldiers that you're paying for out of your, you know, your your private accounts and, and profit margins. There potentially is a better lifestyle to be had for, for the average farmer in Britain because their tax burden has probably decreased. The Roman state was extremely greedy. And what the Roman state didn't get, usually the local oligarchs did. So in that sense, it may have been a, a better era for, for the average farmer. But it's also hard to build up something complex again. And I think that's the, the challenge that the, the new kind of emerging kingdoms of, of post-Roman Britain were facing. Um, one of the benefits of the Roman Empire was really good infrastructure. There were roads. Um, you know, if you needed help, um, if you had a bad crop, if there was a drought or a blight, you could you could request assistance or food from someplace else. And when the empire starts fragmenting, there's fewer places you can turn to for help. You, you lose some of your backup or your safety net, I think is the way to think of it. And in some cases, you know, paying for the Roman army is a bit of a safety net as well, because it, it keeps other people from coming and taking what you do have. Um, so... If soldiers aren't being paid, there's a good chance that the army will kind of wither away. Um, but that's where we need to, I think, better understand the way the late Roman army works. And this is why it's important to know that soldiers weren't just paid in cash. They weren't waiting for a, a, a massive chest of coins to come from, from some distant city. You know, most of their pay was was in food and, and in armament and equipment and shelter. And so that relationship between a commander and his soldiers was... Um, was actually not that dissimilar to, say, a barbarian chief and his warriors, you know, sitting north of Hadrian's Wall. Um, and there's there's a sense of kind of loyalty there and, and kind of relying on that commander to look after you and your family. Um, so it becomes a question of how much were other parts of Britain really supporting, you know, the, the army and, and making it feasible. So it's a, it's a case of allegiance to the man rather than allegiance to the constructs there in, in, in the way that you describe it. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably the case. You know, most soldiers, um, well, I, I'd say they vote with their feet, but they, they probably vote with their stomachs uh, and, and their feet just kind of take them uh, there. So, you know, as long as you've got a commander who's looking after them, keeping them safe, keeping them equipped, keeping them fed, that's a reasonably good commander, especially in a time when you you can't guarantee that someone else will provide those things. Um, and so that that's the trick, is keeping everyone fed. Let's just take another quick moment of reflection, because we've talked a fair bit here about the importance of taking a regional or even a local view um, to try and understand what's happening across Britain as direct Roman influence wanes. And I think that's what you're going to hear from a lot of our other experts as we go through the series. But what we've not discussed much here uh, about was what was happening to the north and west. So I asked Rob if he could talk a little bit about whether there was much population movement and change there. It's harder to see a little bit in the north of England, but actually where we can see it really clearly is in Wales and the southwest. And there's that that whole notion of Irish immigration. Um, so we often think about, you know, the, the end of Roman Britain as being the, the first part of the birth of Anglo-Saxon England. But actually what's being forgotten is, is a substantial amount of, of Irish migration onto the, the western parts of Britain. And so we can see um, inscribed stones with with um, 
what's known as the Irish alphabet of, of Ogham, um, that are testifying to, to Irish settlement. Um, and that's particularly prominent in Wales, but particularly uh, David in southwest Wales and in, in Cornwall. Um, we have also the story of St. Patrick, um, who is kidnapped at, at some point in the earlier 5th century from somewhere in the west of Britain. We don't know exactly where. I think uh, everyone claims him as his own. Uh, Cumbria, Lancashire, Wales, you know, Cornwall. Everyone wants a bit of St. Patrick. But we know Patrick is is stolen as a 16-year-old lad off the west coast of Britain and is a slave in Ireland uh, for a number of years before he hears his calling. So we can see this movement. We have a written account, a very rare written account of a first-person account, an autobiography of being a slave and being taken from Britain to Ireland. Um, and then we have this, this settlement in the other direction of the Irish coming and settling in Britain that we can see with Ogham stones particularly, which give us the names of, of some of these uh, leaders at the time. So there very much is movement. It's still a very dynamic environment. Um, and, and it's, you know, and we have that, that migration on the east coast of Britain as well. Um, what's harder to see is in the north. Um, there are some tales, however, um, one of the the origins of the the Welsh kingdom of Gwyneth is that um, they were founded by a prince of the, the Vodadini, uh, which is a, a tribe which is thought to have been centered on Lothian. In, in southeast Scotland, um, in that um, a, a prince of the Vodadini migrates to North Wales to kick out the Irish invaders and, and becomes a king there. And we can't prove that. It, it might just be a, a folktale. But again, it's it's providing a, a story, a, a migration folklore, as it were, that's connecting different parts of Britain. Right. To, to summarise, and, and you can tell me if I'm putting words into your mouth, but it sounds to me as if what you're saying is uh, you don't see necessarily a particular moment of direct, obvious collapse. There's there's political um, events which, which may or may not have been uh, directly um, relevant to a lot of the population, but you are talking about uh, a, a fifth century being more unstable, uh, less secure, a movement of... of Roman troops to morph into something which is more akin to war bands, but not, uh, and, and just tell me if I'm wrong, not some terrible dystopia where there is no rule of law at all and where everyone is in, in constant fear of their lives. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely correct. So it's, it's you know, if we compare the 5th century, post-Roman Britain with the 4th century, there's there's a lot of change. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think... Absolutely. We could see, as a consumer, you might have a lot less consumer choice. Uh, some of those specialist craft workers might not be as readily available as they were for your grandfather. But it's not to say that every day is a struggle, either. And I think the way I would pitch it is the scale of society shrinks. It fragments. Whereas late Roman Britain was part of a a larger interconnected Roman Empire, um, uh, the globalism of its era, even if there were regional interests and regional differences, there was a, a network in place there for politics, for economy, for um, scholarship. Fifth century Britain doesn't have that. It's just, it's not as well connected in the same way. That's not to say that 
all the ropes in the net were cut. You know, we can see international long-distance travel, migration. We can see that there are still some economic links. You know, we still are seeing, you know, Roman gold coins of the 5th century that will will find their way to Britain. But it's not at the same scale or the regularity that we saw previously. And so I suspect that you need to kind of think of it as, you know, living, living your life with a, a much more zoomed-in or restricted frame of reference. And, and availability of things. I'm going to ask you to get poetic on me now. I imagine you spend a lot of time walking along Hadrian's Wall uh, and, uh, you know, enjoying the scenery there and the, and the fantastic uh, upstanding Roman remains. Do you ever wander on there and think, Carl, what, what, what must have been like here in the 5th century? And what if you do, what, what images are conjured up in your mind? Yeah, actually, all the time. That's that's part of my job, you know, trying to work out what's happening um, along the wall in the 5th century. And I think, again, my question there is it depends where you're standing on Hadrian's Wall. If you're standing on the wall closer to the East Coast at Newcastle or Wall's End or even the, the fort at South Shields, you know, you can see how those those locations have, have been a bit more connected to the sea. Your concerns are maybe not going to be the same as the soldier who's at Housteads or Vindolanda and is in the middle of the wall in a real upland sector that doesn't have any sea connections, whose supplies are coming from the east, you know, from from Corbridge or from the west, from Carlisle. Um, You know, if you know that there's not an emperor there or a, a general, a Dux Britanniarum, to make sure that your men get supplies, um, you might have some genuine concerns about, well, how will I feed my men if we have a bad summer? You know, is there enough food locally to to provide that food for them? And so your alliances, your interests, your decisions might change very strongly based on where you are along the wall. And while I would love to think that those commanders of the wall all continue to cooperate and work together through the fifth century, the reality is, is many of them may have had to make some choices that perhaps those barbarians to the north that were enemies maybe became new friends. And their former commanders, or their former allies, the other commanders along the wall, maybe they became enemies, you know, people who they had to fight with for for resource. And so that loss of empire means almost anything is up for grabs. So that was Dr. Rob Collins of Newcastle University. Um, He's written widely on the frontiers of the Roman Empire, particularly on the subject of Hadrian's Wall. You might like one of his more recent books, Living on the Edge of Empire, The Objects and People of Hadrian's Wall, which is published by Pen and Sword. And if you're a History Extra podcast enthusiast, which is I assume you are as you've got this far with this series, you'll probably enjoy the Everything You Want to Know episode that I conducted with Rob about Hadrian's Wall. Just search through the catalogue for that. Next time round, we're talking about religion. So tune back in to find out about religion in late Roman Britain with Dr David Petz. <laughs>